Welcome to In Layman's Terms, a podcast dedicated to discipleship and putting scripture to use in our daily lives. I'm your host, Todd Seifert. I'm the Communications Director for the Great Plains Conference of the United Methodist Church, comprised of approximately 1,000 churches in Kansas and Nebraska. As the title of this podcast suggests, I'm not ordained clergy, so what I share comes to you in layman's terms. I have more than 20 years of experience teaching the Bible to everyone from teens to 90-somethings, and I'm excited to share what Scripture has to say to us in today's society, and I love to tell stories of how people live their faith. Some episodes focus on a person or church doing great things to serve as the hands and feet of Christ. Some episodes include interviews with experts who can help us along our faith journey. And other episodes include some short reflections on Scripture. Thank you for joining me. For as long as I can remember, I've been intently interested in the why. Why behind events and situations. I think that's why I love history so much. It explains the why behind so many things in our society. Why are so many of our cities located where they are? Well, usually it had to do with access to water or rail lines. Why are states shaped the way they are? Sometimes the lines were determined by geography, sometimes by access to natural resources, always by politics. The events in our history give us a starting point, the beginning of a chain of events that lead to an outcome that we see, at least for now, as an endpoint. In reality, we may only be another dot along the much longer pathway towards something or somewhere that we can't even imagine. As we've discovered, the Civil Rights Movement didn't end in the late 1960s or 1970s. The death of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wasn't an endpoint, but another dot, albeit a significant one on what I am personally calling the path toward equity for people of all skin colors. I remember seeing a Woolworth soda fountain at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. That display commemorated the sit-ins that marked civil disobedience by the African Americans and their white allies in the 1950s. While traveling in southern Mississippi, I once saw an old water fountain with the faded, but still visible, whites-only sign painted above it. When I saw that soda fountain counter and the water fountain, I remember thinking how awful it was that black men and women had to endure such a terrible thing as segregation. Well, I'm older and wiser now. I still think both of those things are terrible, but I also understand now just how trivial those things were in comparison to such an obvious, much larger part of our society. I'm talking about housing. It's how most of us white folks determine our sense of community, our refuge. Frankly, it's often how we build wealth. I can't honestly say I thought a lot about this subject until I saw a book resting on a Barnes & Noble table titled The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. Its subtitle is actually what prompted me to pick it up and buy it. It reads, quote, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America, unquote. As I read this book, which was published in 2017, I learned so, so much about the true economic plight of African Americans in the United States. While the author definitely lets his opinions be known, what he says is backed up by such a mountainous volume of information and truth from public documents and things that you can see with your own two eyes that the points made are almost irrefutable. I was so taken by it that on a whim I tracked down his email address at the Economic Policy Institute and sent him an email asking, hey, would you agree to be my guest on In Layman's Terms? I didn't think there was any chance he would respond. But just a day later, to my surprise and delight, he sent me an email that said, sure. Let's do it. 
What you're about to hear is a little different than some of my other episodes. I've broken the interview into some smaller sections and I'll provide some transitions from time to time, but at times you'll hear some longer descriptions and explanations from Richard Rothstein. Sometimes you'll just hear the exchanges between him and me in the nearly hour-long interview. I hope you'll find what I did, enlightenment as to that all-important question, why? Why do so many African Americans seem to struggle when it comes to housing? Why do so many people of color live in inner cities? Why didn't African Americans make more advancements after the Civil Rights Movement? And how on earth did we, as a self-avowed Christian nation, allow such inequality to get so far out of control? In this episode of In Layman's Terms, we're talking about the complicated and shameful way our government chose consciously, to hold down black Americans. We're talking about how, it turns out, the building of a wall to keep out non-white people really has been under construction for a hundred years. Let's start by understanding Richard Rothstein. I asked him how he got interested in this subject. Well, I used to be a specialist in education policy. I was an education columnist at the New York Times. I wrote about education policy for think tanks in Washington. I came to understand that uh, the biggest problem that public schools have in this country is segregation. Uh, Because when you concentrate the most disadvantaged children in single schools, it makes it impossible for the schools to overcome all of the enormous social and economic uh, disadvantages that those children come to school with in order to get the kind of achievement that you can get in a middle-class school. And I remember writing one column, for example, about asthma. As you may know, uh, African-American children in urban areas have asthma at four times the rate of middle-class white children in suburban areas, four times the rate. They have asthma at such a high rate because uh, they live in more polluted neighborhoods, more diesel trucks driving through, more deteriorated buildings, uh, more vermin in the environment. And I tried to explain in this column, if you have a, a, a child with asthma, that child is more likely uh, than a child without asthma to come to school drowsy the next day because the child has been up at night wheezing, having difficult breathing. And if you have two groups of children who are identical in every respect, except one group has a higher rate of asthma, that group's going to have lower average achievement by a small amount. But then when you start to add up all of the various social and economic challenges that the children in neighborhoods like this have, asthma, lead poisoning, homelessness, economic insecurity, you've pretty much explained the achievement gap that um, is, was the main problem that public education was concerned with. And, uh, and then on top of that, if you have, uh, it's one thing if a child has asthma or lead poisoning or homelessness, uh, But if you have a school where you concentrate children where every child has one or more of these conditions, it's impossible to expect that school to achieve at the level of middle-class schools. Here comes the first of many whys. In this case, why are so many schools segregated in the 21st century? The reality is that uh, we have more schools where we concentrate that, uh, that kind of disadvantage today. We call them segregated schools than we have had any time in the last 50 years. And the reason that we have more segregated schools is because the neighborhoods in which they located are segregated. So I began to think that neighborhood segregation was um, an education problem. 
that's how I came to this. I wasn't really studying housing. But I began to look into it a bit more. Uh, in particular, I read a Supreme Court decision in 2007 that dealt with education policy. As I say, I was, that's what I was focused on. This 2007 court case is provided in a little more detail in the book, but it basically gives us two definitions that are important for the rest of the book and to better understand what Rothstein is telling us in this interview. It's the difference between de facto segregation and de jure segregation. De facto is unintentional, at least on the part of the government or people in power. It's just how things work out. It's an accident. De jure segregation means it happened by way of law and public policy. The pieces of our society meant to help protect life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He explains the basics of the 2007 case. This was a, a Supreme Court decision that evaluated uh, two school districts, Louisville, Kentucky, and Seattle, Washington. Uh, both of them had a choice program in which parents could choose which school uh, the child, uh, their child would attend within the district. But if the choice was going to uh, exacerbate racial segregation, it wouldn't be honored. So if you had a school that was all white or mostly white, and there was one place left and both a black and a white child applied for that last place, the, uh, uh, the, white, the black child would give them some preference. It's a trivial program. You don't have one place left very often, both the black and the white child apply for it. But the Supreme Court, the US Supreme Court prohibited it. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the controlling opinion. He said it's true, the schools in Louisville and Seattle are segregated. He said they're segregated because the neighborhoods in which they're located are segregated. That's also true. And he said the neighborhoods were segregated by private activity, either the bigotry of homeowners or landlords, or perhaps uh, uh, actions of um, businesses in the private economy, like real estate agencies or banks, or maybe people just like them to live with each other of the same race, or maybe it's just economic differences. He said, this is what we call de facto segregation. And they said, if you have de facto segregation, which the government didn't create, which was created in the private economy, you're prohibited from doing anything about it. The government is prohibited from doing anything to undo something that it didn't create. But was the government innocent of causing segregation, as the Chief Justice said? Not according to what Rothstein uncovered next. Well, I read this decision, and I remembered reading about something that happened some years before in Louisville, Kentucky, one of these two school districts that was involved in the decision. In Louisville, Kentucky, there was a white homeowner in a single family home in an all white suburb called Shively. He had an African-American friend in the center city of Louisville renting an apartment. The, the friend was a decorated Navy veteran, had a wife and a child. He wanted to move to a single family home, but nobody would sell him one. And so the white homeowner in this suburb of Shively sent, um, uh, uh, bought a second home and uh, in his community and resold it to his African-American friend. And when the African-American family moved in, an angry mob of white neighbors surrounded the home, protected by the police. They threw rocks through the windows. The police made no effort to stop it. They dynamited and firebombed the home. The police made no effort to stop it. But when this riot was all over, the state of Kentucky arrested, tried, convicted, and jailed with a 15-year sentence, the white homeowner for sedition for having sold a home in a white neighborhood to a black family. You heard that right. The people who caused damage and ran out a black man didn't face any punishment. The white man who tried to help a black friend secure housing in his neighborhood went to prison. And I said to myself, this doesn't sound to me much like de facto segregation. So I began to look into it further. I found that there were hundreds and hundreds of hundreds 
of cases throughout the country in the Kansas City, in New York, in Chicago, in Detroit, and uh, everywhere, not just in the border states like Louisville, San Francisco, and Los Angeles, where police protected mob violence drove African Americans out of homes that they had legitimately purchased in, or rented in white neighborhoods. Every one of them, where the police were involved, and frequently the police organized these riots, didn't just protect them. Every one of them was a civil rights violation, a violation of the 14th Amendment, not de facto segregation. The police are state actors. And so that's what got me started on this. I then wondered if it was more than just a, a state-sponsored violence that enforced racial boundaries in this country. And um, it led to a book, as, as you know, The Color of Law, in which I found there were many, many federal, state, and local policies that were racially explicit, designed to ensure that blacks and whites could not live near one another in any metropolitan area. Every one of them was a violation of the Constitution. If the federal government was doing it, it was a violation of the Fifth Amendment. State and local governments were doing it. It was a violation of the 14th Amendment. Under our constitutional system, we have an obligation to remedy it. His book, The Color of Law, provides example after example of how the federal government, state legislatures, and city officials across this country set segregation into motion, secured it, and then washed their hands of the injustices they had inflicted. This was no American dream. This was a racism-based nightmare. So the theme of the book is that de facto segregation is a myth. Uh, we would not have the segregation we have anywhere in this country uh, simply by private activity if it weren't for very powerful policies of the federal, state, and local government that created, enforced, and sustained the racial segregation that we know today. In the book, Rothstein explains how the mortgages we have today look nothing like the mortgages from early in the 20th century. That alone is why so many fewer people owned homes back then. I asked him to explain how the government leveraged mortgages to further separate people of different races. There was no such thing as an amortized mortgage uh, prior to the New Deal, prior to the 1930s, during the Depression. Uh, the only people who owned their own homes at that time uh, with mortgages were affluent people. Uh, and the mortgages, the kinds of mortgages that they had in the beginning of the 1930s and prior to that were uh, interest-only mortgages with terms of five to seven years. And every seven years, you had to refinance your mortgage. You hadn't gained any equity um, from it uh, and get a new mortgage for another five to seven years. Well, during the Depression, people couldn't refinance their mortgages. And so they were being foreclosed. So one of the first New Deal agencies uh, that was created was something called the Homeowners Loan Corporation. The Homeowners Loan Corporation was designed to um, uh, rescue people from default, from defaulting on their mortgages by uh, issuing new uh, long-term, at that time 20 years, today it's 30 years, amortized mortgages, in which, uh, which would not come due in just five to seven years, and in which a portion of every mortgage payment would be equity uh, accumulated, would go towards the principal, so people would gain equity over time. And the Homeowners Loan, Loan, Homeowners Loan Corporation uh, issued these kinds of mortgages to existing homeowners, most of whom were affluent. The Homeowners Loan Corporation also, though, had to make a decision about where and when to do this kind of uh, refinancing for homeowners in, in the danger of default. And so what they did was they drew maps of every metropolitan area in this country 
designated which neighborhoods it considered, the Homeowners Loan Corporation considered to be less risky or risk-free enough for the federal government to issue or insure these mortgages. And uh, the neighborhoods that they considered too risky for the federal government to get involved were colored red. And one of the characteristics of those uh, red neighborhoods was that African-Americans were living in them. If African-Americans were living in the neighborhood, the Homeowners Loan Corporation colored the map red. And that's where the term redlining comes from, the refusal of the federal government to insure mortgages uh, in neighborhoods uh, where African-Americans were living. In the book, Rothstein traces the history from this mortgage insurance to an even more sinister application of it regarding segregation. Two agencies we know pretty well now, the Federal Housing Administration and the Department of Veterans Affairs, known then as the Veterans Administration, not only were willing participants, but according to Rothstein's research, they literally helped write the book on how to move people of different races further apart. A year or two later, a new agency was created, which we know today, um, the Federal Housing Administration. Its job was not to uh, reinsure mortgages of existing homeowners at risk of default. Its job was to issue mortgages for, to first-time homeowners, home buyers. Also, initially on a 20-year period, later it got extended to, to 30 years, um, and uh, it followed the same policy of typically not insuring mortgages for African-Americans, uh, either living in red line neighborhoods or in white neighborhoods. And this is the key policy uh, that um, the federal government followed to ensure segregation throughout the metropolitan area. And then we go, uh, in order to understand that, we have to go another 10 years into the post-World War II period, when the federal government, through the Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administration, embarked on a policy, an explicitly racial policy, to move the, the white working class out of urban areas, out of urban areas, into single-family homes in all white suburbs that surrounded cities. We talked about one neighborhood being the area around the Country Club Plaza in Kansas City, Missouri. It may seem more upscale now, but it was firmly a middle-class neighborhood back then. But this famous development in our region, built by J.C. Nichols, actually came earlier than the FHA and VA intervention. Nichols used his own money to start the project, but it turns out Nichols' tactics became a template, a model of sorts, for separating people of different races. We were not a suburban country uh, before that time. Uh, the only people living in suburbs, again, were affluent people. Uh, were working class people had to live in downtown areas because uh, they were working in factories. We, we were a manufacturing economy, uh, not, none of this internet stuff. But they had to be able to walk to work. And the factories were located near deep water ports or railroad terminals. So we had a lot of, uh, we had both white working class and black working class families living in urban areas at that time. The Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administration embarked on a program to move them out of those urban areas into single family homes in all white suburbs. African Americans were prohibited from participating in this policy. And you know, um, uh, you're familiar with, I know, uh, these suburbs that were created in the 1940s and 1950s. They're in every metropolitan area of the country. Um, the most famous of them is Levittown, east of New York City. 17,000 homes in one place, but they're in every metropolitan area. Uh, West Lake, south of San Francisco, uh, uh, Lakewood, south of Los Angeles, Detroit, Chicago, uh, Kansas City as well. One example Rothstein comes back to again and again in his book is Levittown, 
One of the reasons is its sheer size. The federal government had to back the loans for construction, and by doing so, it ensured only white people would inhabit this enormous neighborhood. It was 17,000 homes. Levitt could never have assembled the capital to build 17,000 homes in one place for which he had no buyers. But the only way he could assemble that capital was by going to the Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administration, getting a federal guarantee for his bank loan. And the only way he could get a federal guarantee for his bank loan is by committing never to sell a home to an African-American. The FHA even required that he place a clause in the deed of every home prohibiting resale to African-Americans or rental to African-Americans. Uh, as you said, uh, J.C. Nichols in Kansas City pioneered those kinds of deeds. But now, in the post-World War II period, the federal government was requiring them. And so all the suburbs, these suburbs were created um, on that basis, on a racially exclusive basis, where African-Americans were prohibited from uh, purchasing homes. Now, you know, this was post-World War II. You had returning veterans, both black and white, who could easily afford the homes in these places. Uh, in Levittown, for example, uh, they sold for $8,000 a piece. Uh, in today's money, that's a bit less than $100,000. Uh, any black or white returning war veteran could have afforded those homes. They had jobs in the post-war economy, but blacks were prohibited from purchasing them. Besides keeping people apart, why is this policy so harmful? Well, it comes down to wealth. Despite our dreams about really working hard and saving money, or maybe the dream is to find that one great entrepreneurial idea, the reality in America is the easiest way to create wealth is to buy that first home. Over the years, prices appreciate, and that's what happened in Levittown, around the Country Club Plaza in Kansas City, and in many other neighborhoods across the United States. Homes bought in the 1930s are worth vastly more today. Well, those homes in any of these suburbs around the country no longer sell for $100,000. Uh, I don't know, maybe you know of one that uh, you could buy for $100,000, but they don't exist. Uh, they now sell, depending on the area of the country, for three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars in some places, a million dollars or more. The white families who bought those homes with a federal guarantee, a federal subsidy on a racial basis, gained over the next few generations wealth from the equity that in, in the appreciation and the value of their homes. Uh, they used that wealth to send their children to college, to perhaps take care of uh, uh, temporary emergencies, uh, maybe temporary unemployment, which you can weather if you have wealth and it's much more difficult if you don't. Uh, you have no savings. Uh, uh, they used it to finance their retirements and they used it to bequeath wealth to their children and grandchildren who then had down payments for their own homes. African-Americans were prohibited, prohibited for participating in this wealth generating national policy. The result is that today, African-American incomes on average are about 60%, 60% of white incomes. There's a whole story behind that, but I won't go into that now, but you would think if there was a 60% income ratio, there'd be a 60% wealth ratio as well. But in fact, while African-American incomes are 60% of white incomes on average, African-American wealth is only 5% of white wealth. And that enormous disparity between a 60% income ratio and a 5% wealth ratio is entirely attributable to unconstitutional federal housing policy that was practiced in the mid 20th century. And that wealth gap really determines the enormous racial inequality that we have today. It's the reason why African-Americans, so many of them, not all, but so many of them continue to be concentrated in inadequate neighborhoods without good resources, where you have the kinds of problems I described earlier that reflect the achievement gap, that 
predicts um, health disparities between blacks and whites. So African-Americans have on average shorter life expectancies, greater rates of cardiovascular disease because they live in less healthy, more polluted neighborhoods, so many of them do. It predicts uh, the, the police abuse, the mass incarceration that results from it um, because you would not have that to the extent that we do. I'm not suggesting that the uh, police wouldn't ever discriminate, but the kind of uh, abuse and police and mass incarceration we have only results, only occurs because so many um, young men, the most disadvantaged young men in this country without access to good jobs and transportation to get to them, or schools that uh, are not concentrated at places of disadvantage. So many of them are concentrated in single neighborhoods where the police develop patterns of an occupying force. They would not have those patterns if African-Americans weren't concentrated in single low-income neighborhoods. It's an interesting concept, isn't it? Without concentrating people of color in confined areas, we might not have the racial tensions that we have today. Think of the lives saved, the lack of stress and fear. Are you starting to understand some of the whys behind our struggles now? We'll keep going with our discussion with the Color of Law author, Richard Rothstein, right after this short break. Matthew 28 tells us to make disciples of Jesus Christ, but how can you do that? You can help by providing some inspiration each morning to someone else. Just go to www.greatplainsumc.org dailydevotions. Once there, you'll find a QR code and a link to a sign-up page. Pick your day and your topic. If you need some assistance, there's even a link to the Vanderbilt University Daily Lectionary. Follow the instructions for submitting your devotion, and you've done your part to help inspire and encourage others in their Christian walk. Again, that's www.greatplainsumc.org slash dailydevotions. Help make more disciples today. How does your church celebrate big events? How does it gather the community together? How does it sometimes introduce you to people you might not have known? Many times in the Great Plains, it's with a potluck dinner. And that's what we try to do with our podcast, Potluck. This is David Burke from the Great Plains Conference and host of Potluck, where we do, in audio form, all the things a potluck dinner does. Celebrate big events, gather the community, and introduce you to new and interesting people. Listen to Potluck, available at greatplainsumc.org. Welcome back to In Layman's Terms. I'm your host, Todd Seifert. In this episode, we're talking with Richard Rothstein, the author of The Color of Law, an amazing book that explains how white people and black people ended up living so far apart. Before the break, Mr. Rothstein explained how so many metropolitan area neighborhoods became segregated because of government entities like the FHA and VA. Here he is again, this time to explain how government entities and their firm policies caused this concept to expand Across the entire real estate industry to cities large and small. I think that this wealth gap and the segregation that we have created, and I, by we I mean our government, uh, speaking for us, 
segregation that we've created underlies the very, very dangerous and frightening political polarization that we have in this country today. It's not entirely racial, it largely tracks racial lines. And how can we ever expect to create the common national identity that's essential for preserving this democracy if so many African-Americans and so many whites live so far from each other that we have no ability to understand each other, to empathize with each other's life experiences, as I say, to create a common national identity. So I think the consequences of these unconstitutional policies uh, of the federal, state, and local governments that I describe in, in my book, The Color of Law, are enormous. And as American citizens, we have an obligation to redress them. There's civil rights violations. The, um, you mentioned the lunch counters and water fountains. The racial boundaries of every metropolitan area in this country were as much a civil rights violation as the segregation of lunch counters was. And we have an obligation as Americans to remedy it. This policy was not the, the action of rogue bureaucrats working for the FHA or VA. This was a written federal policy of the Federal Underwriting Manual that was issued to appraisers all over the country to um, recommend or not recommend for federal bank guarantees, developers' applications, uh, small and large, um, explicitly said that you couldn't recommend for a federal bank guarantee a developer who was going to build a neighborhood where African Americans would be permitted. The manual even said uh, that um, you couldn't uh, recommend for a federal bank guarantee a developer um, who was going to build an all-white development that would be located near where African Americans were living because in the words of the manual, this is the explicit words in the manual, it would run the risk of infiltration by inharmonious racial groups. Uh, this was written federal policy. This notion of de facto segregation is other nonsense. Because of these policies, Rostein had no problem finding examples of how successful, and I use that word in quotes, these practices were. Here's one example I asked him to share specifically from the book about Detroit. There's a picture in my book of a six foot high, uh, half mile long concrete wall that uh, was put up by a developer of a relatively small, uh, all white project um, in order to separate it from a nearby African American neighborhood. And only once that wall was constructed would the FHA guarantee that developers bank loans. In an era when we debate a wall to keep undocumented people out of the United States, we have to come to grips with the fact that we literally require developers to build walls just to keep black people out of so-called white neighborhoods. Just thinking out loud here, but maybe we should tear down those walls first. Just contemplating. Our conversation took a bit of a detour into a talk about terms we use these days. One of them is grandfathering. One possible origin is detailed in the book Wilmington's Lie by David Zucchino. It details how the fully integrated town of Wilmington, North Carolina, 56% black in 1898, and it's now only about 18%. Anyway, Wilmington was overtaken by people who proudly proclaimed themselves to be white supremacists. They bragged about it. They ran out elected black leaders and business people. They killed black men. They burned black businesses. And then they set up rules so that only people whose ancestors could vote in 1867 could vote in the then current elections. Those who still could vote were considered to be, quote, grandfathered in, unquote. This was one of the few facts I'm sharing in this episode that I can actually say I knew prior to reading Rothstein's book. All of us are learning now much more than we knew before about um, the history of race in this country. 
the legacies of slavery and Jim Crow. And I just read the other day something that I hadn't realized before. The term grandfathering, uh, which we commonly use um, in this country for a variety of reasons, actually has its origins in racial suppression. Uh, it has its origins from uh, the fact that um, Southern states prohibited someone from voting if their grandfather wasn't eligible to vote. And since, um, and that uh, in effect excluded African-Americans from the right to vote uh, prior to the, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 because um, many of their grandfathers were slaves. And these were called grandfather clauses and the term now has become widely used. Um, uh, you know, another term that I just, re I, I should have, it's obvious, I should have thought of it, but uh, we frequently talk about something, you know, somebody being sold down the river as a synonym for exploitation. Well, it's obvious where that came from. That came from the sale of, of uh, the breakup of families in, uh, during slavery. So we have so many residues of slavery and Jim Crow that we uh, need to recognize and, and confront. One of the things I appreciated greatly about Rothstein's book was his ability to take complex subjects under the umbrella of segregation and make them understandable. One of those subtopics was the idea of white flight. Having never lived in a truly urban setting, I had it in my head that white flight was just white people picking up and moving. But it turns out that it was much, much more complicated and manipulative than I could ever have imagined. There are two aspects of white flight. Uh, in the mid-20th century, as black neighborhoods expanded in many cities, as, as African-Americans fled uh, the former slaveholding states into northern and midwestern places, the black neighborhoods in downtown urban areas became very overcrowded, but many African-Americans could have afforded to live elsewhere, like the, the man in um, Louisville, Kentucky that I uh, spoke about earlier. Well, African-Americans were willing to pay more for housing than whites were willing to pay for similar housing simply because their supply was so constricted. There's a question of supply and demand. If you have no few choices, you're willing to bid up the price of homes. So everywhere in the country, African-Americans began slowly to buy homes in the white neighborhoods immediately surrounding the, the downtown black neighborhoods where they lived. They were able to move into them because white homeowners were willing to sell to African-Americans because property values actually increased if African-Americans wanted to buy a home. They were willing to pay more and frequently in these neighborhoods, the best kept homes or the best maintained, the, the most uh, uh, you know, modern remodeling jobs were in African-American homes because these were people moving into communities which were basically white working class communities, but they had incomes that were comparable to middle class incomes. Well, um, once an African-American moved into a, a, a neighborhood that had previously been all white surrounding black neighborhoods, and as I say, paying more for housing than whites would pay, so property values were going up as a result. Real estate agents and speculators went into that neighborhood and um, in, made, engaged in concerted campaigns to scare the white homeowners uh, into believing that uh, their properties were going, property values were going to fall as a result of African-Americans moving in, even though the evidence was that the property values were rising as a result. Uh, there were, uh, I describe in, in my book, The Color of Law, uh, a speculator who brags about how he organized burglaries 
in a neighborhood once African American, once an African American family had moved into it to persuade whites that they'd better leave. They um, hired um, women, to, uh, black women, to walk through the neighborhood pushing baby carriages uh, to try to persuade uh, white homeowners that the, the neighborhood was very rapidly transitioning. Um, they hired young men, black men, to drive through the neighborhood in convertibles with their radios blasting. Um, this was all um, organized by real estate speculators. The term we use for it is blockbusting. Stereotypes, because white people didn't understand the why, also played a part in this concept of blockbusting or white flight. Pretty soon, white homeowners became panicked. Uh, the speculators then bought their homes at far below market value and then resold them to African-Americans at above market value. Uh, the whites left uh, panicked uh, at, as a result of their panic and moved to farther outlying neighborhoods and soon these neighborhoods became all black. Why was it so easy to panic white homeowners? Well, that's the other aspect of this story. African-Americans, as I said before, were concentrated in downtown urban neighborhoods, overcrowded places. Um, they were overcrowded because African-Americans had so few options of places to live. They were doubled, tripled up. When you're double, tripled up in, in uh, homes and in, in buildings that um, are not designed for multiple families, for example, um, the only place you can socialize is out in the streets. And so black neighborhoods had more street life than typical uh, white single family home neighborhoods. Well, whites in these neighborhoods, in their single family home neighborhoods, looked at black neighborhoods and assumed that these were habits of black people, that they didn't want being brought into their neighborhood. Not that they were caused, they didn't understand the causes in overcrowding. They assumed that if, um, if blacks moved into their neighborhood, their neighborhoods would become more noisy. Everybody would be conducting social life in the streets rather than in their homes. And so it was easy for the blockbusters to terrify white homeowners that their neighborhood was going to be uh, converted into a place where they didn't want to live. One other aha moment for me while reading The Color of Law was the way public housing has evolved. When we hear about public housing today, we tend to think of the ghetto. It sounds absurd now, but as a white kid growing up, I remember the comedy Good Times, starred Jimmy Walker. Remember that one? <laughs> well, it's about a family trying to survive in the projects of Chicago. That's what I thought public housing was. I've since learned that that isn't the case. It isn't even close to the case. But I still had no idea how public housing got its start. Public housing was not originally created for the poor. In fact, the poor weren't permitted into public housing. The first public housing in this country uh, was created in the New Deal. It was actually one of the first uh, uh, New Deal programs. The Public Works Administration built the first civilian housing, uh, public housing in this country in its history. First time government ever built housing uh, began at the very early in the New Deal. Um, it was not for poor people. We had, of course, a 25% unemployment rate in the Depression, but public housing was for the 75% who were employed, who had good jobs, who could afford to pay the full cost of housing and their rent, and they didn't public housing. It wasn't subsidized, uh, but there was no housing available for them in the private sector because construction activity had slowed down, uh, come to a halt during the Depression, and so there was an enormous homelessness problem of people who could afford housing, but for whom no housing was available. 
Well, the Public Works Administration built the first public housing in this country for civilians, always for working class families, lower middle class families who could pay the full cost of the, of the housing and their rent. And everywhere it was segregated, separate projects for African Americans and separate projects for whites. Frequently creating segregation where it hadn't previously existed. I mentioned earlier that um, in this period of American history in the mid early 20th century, downtown areas were populated both by white and black working class families. These were integrated neighborhoods. I'm not saying that every other house was occupied by someone of a different race, but broadly integrated neighborhoods. The Public Works Administration frequently segregated those neighborhoods by building separate projects uh, for whites and blacks. Uh, I mentioned in, in the book, I quote the, the autobiography of the great African-American poet, novelist, the Langston Hughes, who describes how he grew up in a downtown integrated Cleveland neighborhood. We don't think of downtown Cleveland as, as being integrated today. He said he grew up in a downtown Cleveland integrated neighborhood. He said his best friend in high school was Polish. He said he dated a Jewish girl in high school. It's what you'd expect to be happening in an integrated neighborhood with an integrated high school. Public Works Administration went into that neighborhood, demolished housing and built a separate project for blacks and a separate project for whites creating segregation in a place where it had previously existed. And with that and other public projects elsewhere in Cleveland, what had a major influence in creating the, the pattern of segregation that exists in the Cleveland area today. So public housing really was set up to provide housing for factory workers. That's obviously not what it is today. The first iteration of public housing was set up to help with the war effort. But even then, segregation factored into the planning. I like in, in, in The Color of Law to mention where I can self-satisfied smug places that uh, think they're better than Kansas. Uh, one of them I talk about is um, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, you've probably heard of it. Uh, the area between Harvard and MIT called the Central Square neighborhood was a fully integrated neighborhood in the 1930s, about half white, half black. Public Works Administration demolished housing there to build a separate project for whites, a separate project for blacks, uh, creating a pattern of segregation there and with other projects elsewhere in the Boston metropolitan area that still persists today. So this went on all over the country. In World War II, hundreds of thousands of workers flocked to centers of war production uh, to take jobs in war industries that hadn't uh, previously existed. And uh, you may know, if, if you're familiar with this history, uh, that the, the great migration of African-Americans out of the former slave-holding states into um, West Coast cities took place for the first time in World War II. There were very few African-Americans on the West Coast prior to World War II. There were some, but very few. So when the federal government built segregated housing for war workers, even though they were working in the same war plants, same shipyards, same, same aircraft factories, uh, it was creating segregation where it hadn't previously existed. San Francisco, for example, uh, the federal government built five projects for war workers. Four were for whites only, one for African-Americans. Uh, the African-American project was in a neighborhood that later became the African-American neighborhood of San Francisco. It hadn't been that previously. And with this, in this way, it segregated the San Francisco uh, metropolitan area the Bay Area, and the same thing happened in Portland and Seattle and Los Angeles. That's why we have segregation today in the, on the West Coast. It's because of these World War II projects, public projects. These were people who had jobs. They weren't unemployed. They weren't poor. They had jobs in war industries, 
the government had to provide housing uh, for workers if they wanted the if the government wanted the planes and the ships and the aircraft carriers to be produced. So it created segregated housing, creating patterns of segregation all over the country that hadn't previously existed. So how do we fix it? I appreciated that Rothstein wonders openly in his book whether we waited too long. And I think it's a serious question. But the author of this book, a book that paints such a dim picture of our country, and for good reason, well, he believes that even with our failed past, we can enact changes and employ real strategies to tear down walls, real and imagined, between people of different races. I'm very hopeful. You know, the, the attention given uh, now in this country to the legacies of slavery and Jim Crow in the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, but also in, in the enormous attention that books about the, this legacy, uh, the popularity of these books, in, including mine, but not only mine, um, gives me hope that we may finally be ready to address this. Um, there, it was created by public policy. It can be uncreated by public policy. It, you're right that there's no political support for the, the policies that are needed today, but because of this, you know, we're having a more accurate and passionate discussion about the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow than we ever have before in American history. I think there's a possibility that we may begin finally to move towards redressing this. Uh, I mentioned in the book that we should have an affirmative action policy in housing. Uh, the unconstitutional creation of all white suburbs creates an obligation on the part of the federal government to redress the civil rights violation we should be subsidizing the purchase of homes in suburban communities by African-Americans who would be living in those communities were they not denied the wealth that white families accumulated um, as a result of this policy. At the low end, we maintain policies today for low-income families that are disproportionately minority, not all of them, but disproportionately minority. It reinforced segregation. The biggest subsidy program for um, Low-income families today that the federal government maintains is something called the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit, which is a subsidy to developers to build housing for low-income families who are disproportionately minority, not all, but disproportionately African-American and Hispanic. Um, that subsidy, the federal Treasury Department rules, create a priority for placing those projects in already low-income neighborhoods, reinforcing their segregation. Um, that's crazy. It should be the reverse. We should create a priority for placing more uh, uh, diverse projects, um, more apartments and townhouses and uh, uh, multifamily units in high opportunity communities, not in the lowest income communities in the country. And that's an easy change to make. So there are many, many policies we could follow. Uh, if we had the political will, and I'm hopeful that we can develop the political will uh, because we have such a more sophisticated understanding today of the legacies of slavery and Jim Crow than we ever had, had ever have had before. Did you find what Richard Rothstein said fascinating? I suspect many of our listeners had some ideas of how segregation became so ingrained in American society, but you may not have known exactly why. There's that word again. Why? My hope is that more people will read Rothstein's work and will think for themselves. I hope people will say they aren't okay with it, that this injustice shouldn't be allowed to stand. 
It took decades to craft the segregation laws and policies and to use those means of power to segregate American citizens. It likely would take decades to make us a truly post-segregation society. I started the interview a bit pessimistic about what the future may hold, but Rothstein's optimism about the future is frankly contagious. He's so much smarter than me, and he understands this subject better than most people of any color. I figure if he can be optimistic, then so can I. And I hope you can too. Maybe someday a child or a grandchild can ask one of us, why? Why did it take us so long to figure out what was so right and what had been so wrong? Because that will mean that we made a difference. Our generation, right now. I want to say thank you to Richard Rothstein for taking time to talk with me about his book, The Color of Law. And if you want a copy of the book, and I really hope you do, you can find it on Amazon and at other major book retailers. You'll find a video of him telling some of the stories from his book on the Great Plains Conference website, www.greatplainsumc.org slash learning to be anti-racist. Terms is a podcast sponsored by the Great Plains Conference of the United Methodist Church and by me, your host, Todd Seifer. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go rate us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. It helps other people find us. And please, if you feel so inclined, share us on Facebook or other social media. Our music comes via a licensed subscription with FirstCom Music. You can find archive podcasts on my website, toddseifert.com, or via a link on the conference website, greatplainsumc.org slash podcasts. Feel free to email me any questions or suggestions to tcypher at greatplainsumc.org, and I'll do my best to respond as quickly as possible. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, please do what you can to help make more disciples of Jesus Christ. You can play a small part in helping change a life.